WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman. Tonight we have a really good show for you. We start off with Audrey Matus to talk about spring cleaning. Then we go to uh, the man behind the Ready for Rand pack to talk about Rand Paul and his nomination for the Republican Party. After that, we spend a weekend in Detroit with the Northern Guard, the fans of Detroit City FC, a soccer team, and the Slow Roll Detroit, a biking event in Detroit. Then Impact reporter Audrey Matus comes back to sit down with Gene Washington, a former NFL player, to talk about a film that his daughters made about his experience at Michigan State and getting drafted into the NFL. But first, here's your weekly Impact update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will start in just a moment, but first, here's your weekly news update. On Sunday, a brawl between two rival biker gangs turned into a deadly shootout, leaving nine dead and 18 injured in Waco, Texas. The incident began at the Twin Peaks Sports Bar, where fistfighting escalated into the use of knives, clubs, and chains before gunfire erupted. 192 people were arrested and will be charged with engaging in organized crime. According to Waco police, nearly 100 weapons were strewn across the site. Luckily, no civilians were injured during the incident, and the police are continuing the investigation. Now, we go to Michael Freeman with the scoop on David Letterman's last show. Tomorrow night, David Letterman will be wrapping up 33 years of hosting late-night television. The final episodes have been featuring guest celebrities like Tom Hanks and Bill Murray, as well as musical performances by Tom Waits, Eddie Vedder, and a rare appearance by Bob Dylan. The plans for the final show are so secretive that Letterman claims that not even he knows the full plans to the program. With your national entertainment news, I'm Michael Freeman. Lastly, we go to Audrey Matus with the latest on a political protest in Africa. Today in Africa's Great Lake region, Burundi police fired tear gas and beat protesters calling for President Pierre Nkurunziza to stop his bid for a third term. Protesters claim that Nkurunziza's attempt at a third bid is in violation of the Constitution and a peace deal that ended the 2005 ethnically-fueled civil war. An estimated 20 have been killed in the duration of the three-week-long clash between protesters and police. The continuation of these clashes that have mostly dealt with power struggles is leading to fears of a revival in the region's history of ethnic cleansing. For your international news, I'm Audrey Matus. This has been your weekly news update. I've been your anchor, Michaela Harris, and Exposure starts right now. To start off the show tonight, we go to Audrey Matus as she discusses antiques and time machines. Last week, my neighborhood had a garage sale. So in the essence of spring cleaning, I spent my week helping my parents carrying boxes of school glue, finger paints, and old Halloween costumes up from the basement into our garage. There, we tried to arrange them attractively on tables and hang them on clotheslines, trying to muster up whatever value these long-lived things had, an opportunity for a second life before facing their inevitable distinction, also known as the trash. While the bargain hunters weren't prowling through my old stuff, and I sat alone in the garage, I looked over my shoulder and I'd see a Darth Vader mask, plastic dishes with little bubbles that my mom finally decided to get rid of, mountains of clothing, good-intentioned yards of fabric, and of course, the hardly-touched, as-seen-on-TV devices. To me, it just all begged the question, All right, Mom and Dad, why do we have so much junk? Well, I don't think a lot of it is junk. I think we both have maybe some hobbies or likes or things. He's more technical side, so there's a lot of electronic things that we've hung on to and still hang on to. She's referring to all my computers, and it's, it goes along with she talked about her Walkman. I've got some of the first computers ever. <laughs> 2K memory, and I think, you know, it's not junk anymore. Where it actually is a um, small museum of the changes um, that I've seen in my life. When following the classic phrase, one man's trash is another man's treasure, my family and I seem to believe that most of the things that we own have an indispensable value. 
But when do these sentimentally calculated values become an excuse for a habit of making senseless purchases? Back in the elementary school, I always passed this white Victorian home on my way to and from school, and always had this admiration for the charming home and its large garden. But with the awe came this mystery about the owner of the home. It wasn't until last week that I finally got my chance to meet the owner, an antique dealer named Michelle Eschelbach. It's just like um, when I'm ironing and I'm ironing a certain pillowcase, I remember what TV show was on when I ironed that one, which sounds really strange, but I bet if you're a drinker and you're in the bar and you, you can remember the hottest chick in that bar. Michelle's a feisty, tiny ball of energy. She has two cats. In fact, you probably hear them in the background during our interview at times. And Michelle knows a lot about the antique business and the hundreds, probably thousands of trinkets, keepsakes, and whatchamacallits that fill her home. Um, has anyone ever called you a hoarder? Yes, but I know just about every antique dealer that has a house that's similar to this. But, you know, I see it as a blank wall. I just don't see the problem. I, I keep it pretty well organized. I can pretty much within five minutes go to just exactly what I'm looking for. Maybe I can't find it right away, but I also remember what I paid for it. Michelle runs her own antique business called Satin Ribbons, and you may have guessed it. She also collects vintage ribbon. Spending time with Michelle and sitting in her living room, I sort of let my mind wander as I looked upon her ribbons, floral teacups, and ceramic cherubs on her walls, making it difficult at times to focus on my purpose for coming over. Do you think perhaps my generation, millennials, or just maybe culture right now in general, uh, don't pay enough attention to the past and like wanting to learn more about the past? Um, I think it's it's more of a throwaway society. Um, if something breaks, we'll get a new one. Um, you know. A lot of you will never use or maybe even see a, a main typewriter to know how that works. I think pencils are going to be obsolete pretty soon. Mm -hmm. um, phones. I mean, you wouldn't ha know what to do with a ringer phone, let alone a rotary dial phone. Um, it's just kind of the way it is. So how can collecting remnants of the past teach kids to appreciate and value what they just see as their parents' junk piling up in their garage? Carol Lamb is also an antique dealer. Treasure hunter, I was suppose you would say. She's owned Lambsgate Antiques in Old Town for 14 years. I, I don't think I'm reselling people's junk. Carol thinks that by exposing kids to antiques, it offers them an educational lesson. And the children, when the children come in, they love the typewriters and the rotary telephones. And they ask me how to use them, and they get such a kick. They think that they're so cool. They want to know how to delete on the typewriter. And when I tell them that we had to use white out or carbon paper, it's, it's actually an education for them. It's important for younger generations to be aware of how technologies have progressed, because like most things, what is left unknown to us often gets ignored, or in this case, written off as junk. Today, it is easy to pick up that there's a stigma associated with the words old and outdated, where with antiques, these qualities are seen as valuable. Especially since we have so many historical records, sometimes youth will feel like there isn't much more to learn about history. However, you begin to realize how much is missing from your textbooks once you hold an actual remnant of someone else's past. I have a firm affinity, a, a connection with the Civil War people. I don't know why. Michelle, the antique dealer that lives in the house I was so obsessed with as a kid, would agree that some items can take you back to a moment, even one that you didn't personally experience. And I feel a kindred spirit to those people. I don't know. I sold a lot of it. Um, I did an estate sale where... I was in a closet and it was what we call old lady schmutz. That's where it smells like old perfume and there's rows upon rows of clothes. Well, I got through the first two rows and then there were 23 boxes. And in those 23 boxes were probably 40 pistols, guns, um, derringers, all um, some Chippendale, some French dueling pistols, some Moroccan. And it was just a, a wonderful experience. I felt like I, w I was there. I was a part of it. I mean, I didn't feel the pain, but I, there was an empathy for it. It makes you want to read the continuing story of um, Scarlett O'Hara, you know, just, just a little bit like that. Carol, the owner of Lambsgate Antiques, has witnessed the actual magics of holding on to old memories that didn't necessarily even belong to her. I have even had people find pictures of their family in here, their great-grandfather, um, because people get rid of these photographs. They don't know who they are if they weren't written on the back. These old photographs from the 1800s, early 1900s, they end up in antique stores. And I've had two cases where people have found their relatives. So that's been fun. You know, it's probably a two-part answer. One of it is partly me. That's my dad explaining like said, to me so why he is so adamant about me saving my childhood to toys and artwork. Um, and I think I told you the other day, I wish I still had my first teddy bear, you know? <laughs> and, that, and I think it would just be cool to be able to pull out some of those memories because... They're good memories. 
You know, it's kind of, it's like looking at photographs. Why do people keep photo albums? Because when you go through them, something goes through you and brings back good memories. And um, it's like going a trip back in time, taking a trip back in time. I wouldn't compare the nostalgia one gets from an object to launching off in the DeLorean. However, I think like time travel is a pretty fair description for how I felt when I passed through the entryway of the home I was so curious about as a child. The feeling of going back in time wasn't evoked by the vintage items in Michelle's home. It was really just getting familiar with the previous unknown, awakening a vintage curiosity, perhaps. I think you and I can both agree that letting go of things from the past to make space for present needs is necessary. But take it as a lesson from these ladies, that before you throw something away, remember that what you're holding on to could be a time portal for a future generation. For Impact News, I'm Audrey Matus. Next, we go to Robin Kerner to talk about Rand Paul's run for the Republican nomination. All right, today I am joined on the phone by Robin Kerner, the communications director of the Ready for Rand Pack. Uh, how are you doing today, Robin? I'm doing all right. I apologize for my voice and intermittent coughing in advance. Um, so you recently became the communications director of the Ready for Rand Pack. Uh, is that right? How, how's that going yeah. for you? Well, so far, so good. It's early days, um, but we've built quite a strong core team of, of, of which I'm a part. Um, and the reason, I mean, uh, the reason I'm excited about this position and the reason I took this position is that uh, Jay Stark, who founded it, is looking to target specifically to target millennials. And he has a very strong sense of something that I have been talking and writing about for years, uh, that culture precedes politics. And that if we're going to move the political dial towards liberty, we have to engage with the culture of our target audience. We have to reflect the, the culture of our target audience back on itself. And uh, that was very much what he wants to do with this pack. He has been following my work uh, under the Blue Republican banner for many years and wants me to do the messaging for him and for Ready for Impact, just as I have been doing it for Blue Republican, um, which I launched for Ron Paul in 2011. So, uh, yeah, I'm quite excited about this, and I feel very good about my decision now that I've seen some of the other people he has as part of this initial core team. So I'd like to talk about uh, this millennial uh, kind of target audience. Mm. Uh, but first, I'd like to talk a little about, you said mentioned Blue Republican a little bit, and I've mm. noticed that that's, is that that's a term you've coined, right? Yes, it is. I coined it in an article I wrote for liberals for progressives on the Huffington Post in 2011. And the reason I coined it was to say, look, um, we've seen what Obama has done in his first term. Many uh, liberals, Democrats, independents voted for Obama because they thought they were voting for civil rights, against cronyism, against preemptive war, you know, associating all those things with Bush. But now we've seen that Obama was kind of, you know, a Bush plus. So I was saying to the liberal readers of the Huffington Post, stay true to your liberal principles and support the only guy in the race that has a track record on them, uh, who happens to be an old white conservative Republican who's called Ron Paul. And I said, if you're reading this on the HuffPo, you probably don't like the Republican Party, which I completely understand. But you need to be in the party, even if not of it, to get Ron Paul on the ticket. So you need some kind of name to keep yourself apart from all those Republicans you don't identify with. So I, I coined this term blue Republican uh, to describe those who kind of came from the left or from an independent mindset into the party, the Republican Party, to support Ron Paul specifically. And the, the term sticks, and now it's a, a movement with national reach and, 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 you know, state chapters around the place, and it's growing. So that's, that's where the term comes from. It was coined for uh, Ron Paul. And actually, Blue Republican was the biggest coalition for Ron Paul's candidacy right up until the day he was denied at the, uh, at the convention. So, um, so I'm obviously rather proud of that, and that's, that's kind of my pedigree in the liberty movement. 
So Ron Paul, as well as Rand, uh, seems to be commonly identified with libertarianism. So is this blue, uh, blue Republican, as you call it, is that kind of uh, on the same terms as libertarianism? How do they differ? Yes, um, it is. Uh, if you wanted to pick uh, an established political label that most closely relates to blue Republican, it would be libertarian. Um, if you asked me to label myself, uh, I would first of all quote Kierkegaard and say, if you label me, you negate me. But if you insisted, I would probably say classical liberal. But as um, I'm a classical liberal, but many people have joined uh, Blue Republican um, and I identify with it on the whole spectrum, you know, just from disaffected independents uh, through classical liberals, libertarians, even to anarcho-capitalists. And they're all kind of, you know, on our Facebook group and in our community. And they're all welcome because what we're about is seeking common ground um, wherever we need to, to be able, as I say, to move the dial on any particular issue towards Liberty. Now, the reason I don't use the word libertarian to describe myself specifically, um, usually, is because what separates Blue Republican from, let's say, you know, the libertarianism of the Libertarian Party is that we recognize that sales and marketing, that the packaging of the message is as important as the message itself. It's no good grandstanding on principles, making a religion out of your politics, if nothing happens. And, um, and although I'm a big supporter, especially now, of the Libertarian Party, um, in terms that I work with them, I speak at their conventions and so on, for 40 years, they've kind of, many of them, and it's changing, but many of them have made a kind of an orthodoxy about libertarianism, and the word libertarian kind of puts the walls up um, for some people who just kind of think, oh, they're freaks, they're kind of marginal. Um, they haven't made much traction in 40 years in the mainstream. So uh, I... I'm, I don't use that label. And, and whereas I was basically arguing, for, for example, for libertarian um, uh, philosophy in that original Blue Republican article, I never used that word in the article. And one of the reasons it went viral, one of the reasons it was so successful, was nobody could, could pigeonhole it anywhere, including in the libertarian pigeonhole. So, so I'm, just, I'm just saying, look, guys, sales and marketing is really important, and this word libertarian hasn't really been very good for marketing our views. So, so if I can... You know, help you, as it were, by by speaking to those people who are going to be turned off by that term. Then that's what I want to do because I want to convert the unconverted, not preach to the converted. All right. So, uh, if Blue Re Republican is referring to standing behind that candidate, kind of like like you wrote in that article, um, who seems to be more aligned with the liberal views, but is running under the Republican uh, Party, why is it that? Ron and Rand are running under the Republican Party as opposed to the Democratic Party. Oh no, I'm not saying I'm not saying that um, Ron or Rand would have been that their philosophy better suits the Democratic Party. It doesn't. I mean, the Liberty Movement uh, in May, in the mainstream, and you think of like a Mash and Massey and, and obviously Rand and obviously Ron. Um, that movement exists as a kind of a subculture in the Republican Party. Uh, obviously, there are elements of the, of the philosophy of libertarians with a small letter like Rand and Ron that uh, you would think many, and indeed, in, in fact, many Democrats do like, you know, anti-war Democrats, um, anti-war progressives as they identify, etc., etc., uh, anti-pronyism, uh, you know, those Democrats who understand that you've got a state corporate axis uh, especially financial corporations, which I talk a lot about. I mean, there are many people who, you know, identify Democrat, uh, who do agree with all of these elements of more libertarian philosophy. But, you know, culturally, libertarianism has more of a substrate in the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. Uh, you could argue theoretically that it shouldn't be that way, um, but it is that way. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying... I'm not saying vote for Rand or Ron because they're liberal in the, in the sense that most Democrats use that term. Right. I'm against the establishment Democrats and the establishment Republicans because I see them as illiberal, you know, in the proper sense of the word liberal, right? In the classical liberal sense of the word, um, not the progressive sense. I see them as both illiberal. So, you know, you have to, it's a question of um, a kind of a strategic or methodological or a political cultural choice. All right, I and see. it makes sense to be in the Republican Party, and that's absolutely fine because you've got to work with what you've got. Okay. What is it about Rand Paul that makes you stand behind him as a candidate specifically? Well, the short answer to that is 
of all of the mainstream candidates. It is absolutely clear. I mean, say Democratic or Republican candidates and likely candidates. It is absolutely clear to me that he is the best by a mile. Um, there is no such thing as a politician who's a panacea. There is no politician who could deliver uh, a utopia, even a libertarian utopia, if there is such a thing, um, you know, the day he gets into office. So it's not about saying this candidate um, represents the perfect political destination for America. It's about which candidate can move us clearly in the direction of liberty in those areas where we most urgently need to do that. Um, and obviously, one of the huge ones is civil rights, is unconstitutional conflict, because we are surveilling Americans illegally, we are invading their privacy illegally, and we are killing foreigners illegally. Um, and these are huge uh, travesties, they're un-American, they're immoral. And yeah, look at the field, in these directions, as in others, Rand Paul is clearly the best candidate uh, to move us. Uh, in the right direction, and rightly or wrongly, the media concentrate on Republican presidential candidates. So, given that the cameras and the, you know, the radio shows, whatever, are going to be concentrating on this range of candidates, let's help shine the light on those like Rand, oh, the one Rand, who is um, getting our philosophy, philosophy of liberty, even if not perfectly, into the mainstream. Because it has to get into the mainstream if we're going to move the cultural and political dial, as I say. All right, so what are some of the biggest issues Rand and his campaign are going to focus on in these coming months? I know you just listed liberty and constitutionalism, but what are some actual concrete issues that you think uh, Rand will be focusing on? Well, I again, so I work uh, for a PAC. I am not part of the official campaign, right? So I'm not right. an insider. So whatever their strategy, uh, strategies may be going forward, short-term, long-term, I cannot speak to them. Right. Um, but we already see how he's laid out his store, right? He's laid his, out his store with, um, uh, with the NSA. This is very important. Uh, this is hugely important for me. Um, making sure, uh, as I say, foreign war is constitutional. Um, and actually, you know, constitution, constitutionality as an issue is kind of huge because that touches on, obviously, we're talking about you know, all of the Ten Amendments in the Bill of Rights, pretty much all of which have been advocated. Right. So um, when we say constitutionality, we're really talking about putting at least 10 important issues to the forefront. Right. Uh, now, one of the interesting things that moves that he's making and that he's clearly running on is criminal justice reform. And this is a great uh, issue to be running on. This is the, the issue that's put him in communities that traditionally, you, know, um, you might say, left wing Democrats have been speaking to. Uh, yeah, we're talking about the drug war in this regard. Very important now. I mean, that again, something else that's re resulting massively in the direct loss of liberty and lives of uh, good Americans, of decent Americans. Um, so we can already see, I think, where we're going. It was interesting also, um, in his announcement, he talked about uh, balancing the budget, um, the federal budget. Now, this might be a little pie in the sky um, in terms of implementation, but it, it speaks to it speaks seriously to the direction in which he wants to go with respect to the size of government, and I believe um, certainly along with all libertarians that government uh, our government is way too big, especially the federal government. I'm a big believer in the Tenth Amendment as well, like Rand. Um, so you might be hearing a, you know more about that. All right, so now I want to kind of focus on a topic that you brought up in the beginning, which is the audience, the target audience mm. that uh, this campaign might be looking for, which is the millennials. Uh, so do you, do you think that uh, libertarianism specifically appeals to students and young people? Or do you think maybe that uh, some people might criticize that it's actually misleading or targeting students and young people? Now, what do you mean by misleading? Um, In what way? A lot, of, uh, a lot of criticisms about libertarianism will be that uh, they try to make people think that, that they believe the same things libertarians believe when they pick and choose certain uh, beliefs that libertarians hold? Um, okay, but if... Oh, okay, so you're saying that you think libertarians maybe claim more people than actually identify libertarians. Right. Okay, okay. Uh, well, look, the, what's going on certainly with the pack that I'm involved with and what drives... Yeah, the current uh, incarnation of Blue Republican, is this understanding that many Amer the fastest growing political bloc in the U.S. are the registered 
unaffiliated and or independent, non-Republican and non-Democratic. So there's this kind of swinging middle of disaffected um, people who are not interested in the same old establishment account of American politics, you know, the Democrat-Republican game, the left versus right, oh, the left calls all the problems, the right have all the answers, or the other way around. Now, um, what we need to do in the broader liberty movement is speak to that disaffection, right, is reflect it back to the people who feel disaffected and say, look, we see that you're disaffected on, on these issues um, that the current duopoly hasn't delivered. In fact, you know, the Republicans and Democrats are kind of two wings of the same bird. Um, you know, they've both been for cronyism. They've both been for reducing your rights, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, here's an alternative philosophy that doesn't sit on that left versus right spectrum. Now, the way to speak to the disaffected folks is to find the issue on which they are disaffected. Um, indeed, to find the issue on which people wish to be left alone. Everybody has an issue or two or three or four on which they're essentially libertarian, which is, please let, leave me alone to make my own decisions and don't interfere, and I don't want to interfere with the similar decisions in other people's lives. Now, this might be, for example, you know, uh, gay marriage, um, but it might also be uh, the ability to use, find information and use the Internet without being surveilled, right? Um, you know, that's, that's a leave-me-alone issue. I was talking to Grover Norquist recently, and apparently a huge leave-me-alone community is the people who are vaping, you know, like the e-vaping stuff, the e-cigarettes. Mm-hmm. I mean, who would have thought that? But they've been politically really effective in state across state because that's their leave-it-alone issue, leave-me-alone issue. So I, what I'm saying is I think the liberty movement broadly, if they are not coming off as dogmatic libertarians, if they're not trying to shove an entire worldview and philosophy down people's throats, if we don't do that, we can connect with people on, in the increasing areas of disaffection. And it's almost as if, um, every time there's another piece of news about the federal government abusing our rights, it's as if the federal government is driving people to our point of view. Like we haven't got to, we haven't really got to do much at this point, except just let people continue to get hurt by what their government is doing, by what the big state is doing, what the big state is doing hand in hand with big financial corporations, um, and then not alienate them when they naturally move towards our point of view, when they naturally start to feel that unless we look our politics in a different way. What we, what we take for granted today and yesterday, we're not going to have tomorrow. So I'm for a very inclusive, non-dogmatic kind of liberty. And that's why I hesitate to use the word libertarianism, because as I said earlier, I think we will alienate these disaffected folks, many of whom, by the way, to get to your question, are millennials. Right? Many young folks that I speak to in the course of my work, under 30, people who are younger than me, they are not caught up in the left-right Republican-Democrat paradigm. So they, they're educating themselves in the very ideas that people in the liberty movement, like me, are passionate about. They're ripe. They're, they're intellectually curious. Um, you know, they don't believe cable news, and they don't believe their professors. They're doing their own, own work. That's great. You know? um, so we can really speak to those folks if we're sensitive about realizing that we're sales and marketing, not just pushing a world, you know, an entire kind of worldview. We're just about out of time. Uh, last, just leaving question. Do you think Rand Paul is really a pinnacle representation of libertarianism, or do you think he's closer to this coined term that you've uh, coined yourself, Blue Republican? Um, I don't know yet. I, you know, I, I think we're going to find out a lot about Rand as he goes through this, uh, the, you know, what he's going through now, take this journey he's on to win the nomination, because obviously he has to deal with political realities of playing to one base or another, um, and so, you know, there's always detective work trying to, like, find out where does he really sit. Um, and I haven't yet sat across the table from the man and looked him in the eye, so I hesitate to answer that question. All right. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Quinn. I appreciate your time. You can join the conversation on Twitter and tweet us at impact underscore exposure. Right now, we start off our weekend in Detroit on the fields of Detroit City FC with their fans known as the Northern Guard. So soccer is a worldwide phenomenon, but it's no secret that the U.S. has been behind on this fad. I actually did a whole story on this once about that specific topic, the rise of soccer in the U.S. But like I said earlier, we just haven't quite caught up to the rest of the world yet. As far as popularity of soccer leagues go, the pecking order goes something like this. European leagues, first and foremost like the Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, Serie A, 
Those are all the ones you may have heard of. After that, it goes to South American leagues. Most of those you might not have heard of. That's followed by Major League Soccer in America, as well as a lot of other leagues around the world. But the point is, we're not really the center of the soccer world, and we know that. But under each of these leagues, there's a second and third league, sometimes even a fourth or a fifth. The other day, I went to the season opener of an American League soccer team. It wasn't MLS, and it wasn't our second league or even our third league. It was all the way down at the bottom, fourth league American soccer team. But I guess no one told the fans that. This was Detroit City FC's supporter group, known as the Northern Guard. The owner of Lansing United, another fourth league team, told me, Detroit City uh, has done a a wonderful job uh, in our league. They're kind of the gold standard when it comes to uh, what they do with their fans, and and they have a, a tremendous supporter section. So I went to go see them, and they certainly were a golden standard. I would say it's a rouge and gold standard. That's Drew Gentry, or Sarge, as most call him. Rouge and gold are Detroit City's colors, if you didn't get the joke. I met up with him after the first game of the season last Friday. They had won, and Sarge was no longer wearing his shirt. He was, however, proudly sporting his painted army helmet that had Northern Guard on the front. I'm what they call a head capo. Um, when, they, when we have large supporter groups like this, it's a South American style to have one or anywhere between about one to five. Depending on the size of the section, you'll have people that lead the chants um, and make sure that everything stays coordinated. And it gives them a fuller effect onto the pitch, and it's a lot more intimidating for opponents. So I am, I'm the head capo uh, for the Northern Guard supporters. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to sound arrogant, but when you look at the rest of Tier 4 soccer, there really isn't anything as big. You've got a couple, I mean, you've got a couple of core support. You've got, uh, you know, really good supporter groups in Chattanooga, in Tulsa, and here in Detroit. And it's kind of like the trifecta of awesomeness. You know, it's a trifecta of minor league support with major passion. He, as well as all the other capos, are the reason the supporters show up. And they are definitely showing up. We're talking thousands of people, all very charged and very angry. I mean, they're saying some pretty vulgar stuff sometimes. And just a reminder, this is fourth league American soccer. The players don't even get paid. Yet, I can't help but feeling that some of these fans would die for them. We're talking banners, flags, drums, even smoke bombs. So why are all these people doing this? I think what we have done is, uh, first of all, we've caught lightning in a bottle. Uh, This was the right team with the right ideals, the right system at the right time. Uh, Huge congratulations, or not congratulations, but accolades have to be put onto our ownership because they kind of sat back and let us do what we wanted to do. And uh, the the passion is there. It was the the right club at the right time that let us do what we wanted to do and display our passion for our club. And this is what true football support is right here in these stands tonight. That analogy, lightning in a bottle, actually seemed pretty accurate when you see them. I mean, these kinds of supporters are not uncommon around the world. But this kind of force for such a small team, and in America of all places, it's certainly something to behold. It seems like this team just hit the right place at the right time. Detroit City, when the citizens needed something to create, to believe in, to be a part of. I asked Sarge what his favorite part of the game days are. The pregame, the march into the field, the postgame... None of that. My favorite part and the reason that I come back match after match is I like to, I like to figure out who's brand new. 
who's attending their first match. And when we hit that first chant and hit all of those sirens and all those horns and all that smoke when we start the game, I try to look at that person's face and I want to watch them get blown away. And that's what makes it worth it, is exposing more people and converting more people to this raw passion that we've tapped into here in Detroit. So go ahead, draw your own conclusion if you'd like. Detroit City FC might be a beacon of hope and things to come for the city of believers, or it might just be a low-level soccer team in the city that really wanted a soccer team. The only thing we'll know for sure is the Northern Guard will be there, every game shouting profanities at the other team. Our second part of our weekend in Detroit is yesterday's slow roll. Yesterday, on a beautiful Monday afternoon, engineering director at the Impact Phil Beard and I loaded up our bikes and headed down to Detroit for the weekly slow roll Detroit. This two-hour community bike ride has been grabbing the attention of Detroiters and people everywhere. The concept is simple. Invite an entire community on one big bike ride around the city they all love and hope they show up. This idea was conceived five years ago by Slow Roll founder Jason Hall and Mike McCool, and people showed up. Now, Slow Roll Detroit has become one of the largest community events in the history of the city. Phil and I showed up a few minutes late, but it wasn't a problem. There were hundreds who were still arriving. Parking was a mess, but once we got in our bikes, it was easy. We merged into a river of cyclists and started rolling. There was always someone within earshot who had speakers, so anywhere you were in this river of cyclists, you could normally enjoy music of some kind. If you didn't like the song, you could just ride 10 feet ahead and hear another. There was also a huge diversity of bikes. Low riders, tandems, recline, there was even a guy riding a giant scooter that you could pedal like an elliptical machine. But more so than the bikes, there was an incredible diversity of people. People from low and high incomes, people of all sorts of different backgrounds and ethnicities, and they were all riding through the streets of Detroit in one massive celebration. We rode through multiple neighborhoods, most of which were neighborhoods I didn't know existed. It was like a tour through a city I thought I knew, but this was certainly a new perspective. We finished the trek somewhere around 9 p.m., and I met up with one of the co-founders, Jason Hall, to ask him about the role. Man, we found it slow roll because we just wanted to show Detroit off in a better light, man, outside of a car. You know, we feel like the car is one of the worst environments to really reconnect with everything around you. Get out of that glass bubble, get on two wheels, and meet some people. We've done that and more. I mean, you were on this ride tonight, and you looked around, and you can see the diversity that is in this ride. And what people don't know is this is the diversity that truly exists in Detroit. When people talk about Detroit, they talk about two sides, but there's really one. And pe people need to get over that, and we've shown that. I asked him how the police felt about the role. The police love us. We're partnered up with the police and the city of Detroit. So they actually provide full protection for us. They lead us through and in, you know, in and out of everything. They block intersections for us because they understand the positive impact that this is making on the city, not only financially, but the way people feel about the city. The role had plenty of optional fees, not to mention a lot of merchandise. So I asked what they were doing with the money they made. We are a 501c3. We have applied for our 501c3. All those funds go to keeping this thing going. This year we had to get permits with the city. We had to get insurance, which is costly when you're, you, you build a ride that you really don't know what the number is. And, you know, a lot of co costs became reality this year. You know, the last four years we were just gathering and riding bikes. Well, now we're doing it and we have to pay the police. And we don't mind doing that because that's playing into the pool that's making Detroit a better place. And as for the diversity? You know, I grew up in Detroit, and I grew up on the west side of Detroit, and I grew up in a neighborhood where you didn't see people from the suburbs, okay? So there's always been this sort of, what's going on over there, or what's going on over there? And what Slow Roll really did is break that down and say, it's okay for us all to really hang out with each other. All this, like, BS that's, that exists, it's not real. We're all in this together. So, yeah, that's what's up. Finally, I asked what he saw for the future of the Slow Roll. I mean, it's been going on for five years now, so what's next? 
The future of slow roll is already happening right now. We're in 12 cities all over the world right now. Berlin, four cities in Sweden. We've crossed the pond. We're in London, Chicago, Cleveland, and we've been contacted by over 100 cities. So now it's time to take the message that Detroit invented and move that around the world. I also asked a few strangers how they felt about the roll. Oh, it's a fun ride. You know, we do this, we've been doing this for two years. So, but today is my first night since uh, they started. But I came with my friend, but also you get to meet other people. We met a lot of people just riding. Everybody's so nice and friendly. It's a good ride. Over the past two years, from the time that I did it the first time, seeing how much it has grown, it's a very, very, very positive thing for the city. And it gets people involved to see different parts of the city that we didn't know that really existed. The down riding, but they're really taking care of areas, and it gives everybody from the suburbia areas, even in Detroit, like there's some areas that I'm going through that I didn't even know existed, and I'm just really having a great appreciation for the city. After that, it started to drizzle, so I packed in the microphone. But both Phil and I decided to spend an additional hour in Detroit before we went back to Lansing. And I think that says something. Detroit has seen a lot in this past decade, and this ride certainly didn't try to hide that. But it did show a side of Detroit that still really has a love for its city. And every Monday, you can bet that side of Detroit will show up again. And they will be on bikes. To finish off the show tonight, we go to Audrey Matus as she sits down with Jean and Maya Washington. So I'm honored today to be sitting with you two. Um, here we have Maya Washington, an independent filmmaker who started a project film called Through the Red Cedar that investig- investigates the lives of athletes of color and their experiences in an integrated environment for the first time during the peak of the civil rights movement in America as well as discussing their impacts in the current state. So how are you today, Maya? Good. Thanks so much for having us. Yes, our pleasure. And then to her side, we have Gene Washington. Um, He is a legendary Spartan, former wide receiver for MSU's 1965 and 66 national championship teams, first round pick in 1967 NFL draft. Glad to have you here, Gene. How are you? I'm fine. I'm so happy to be here. Great. Awesome. Okay. So we're going to start, let's start first with the title, Through the Red Cedar. Why did you pick that title? Well, we picked the uh, title Through the Banks of the Red Cedar because, uh, well, if you're a Spartan, you know that the fight song is On the Banks of the Red Cedar. And so it was through the banks of the Red Cedar that my dad came here to Michigan State that his destiny was changed forever. He uh, was raised in the segregated South in the in the 50s and 60s in Texas. So the things that uh, your community has now today, the integrated environment that, that you could be from anywhere in the world, um, all over this mm-hmm. campus, that was a new concept in America and definitely a new opportunity for him. So his coming to Michigan State changed his life and ultimately changed the direction of my family. So I think a lot of people can say that they have benefited greatly uh, through the banks of the Red Cedar or through the uh, opportunities that happen here on MSU's campus. Great. In my lifetime, I'm pretty used to seeing um, athletes of color being at the forefront of a team and being promoted as like, he's the face of our team. But I'm aware that was not the case 50 years ago. So Gene, what was it like being a recruit from Texas to play at MSU? That I, I was a, a great opportunity. And I was so delighted that I had an opportunity to come to play for the Spartans. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hometown is LaPorte, Texas, uh, uh, about 20 miles from downtown Houston. So it was very, very uh, unique f- for me to have that opportunity to come to Michigan State, uh, especially uh, when you think about a completely segregated situation. Uh, the opportunity that I had with, it was given to me by Duffy Doherty, and Duffy uh, did a lot of high school coaching clinics in the Texas area, and especially the Houston area. And he became very good friends with Bubba Smith's father, Coach Willie Ray Smith. I competed against Bubba in football and football and basketball. And of course, Bubba was going to go on to college, and Michigan State was heavily recruiting Bubba. Uh, Bubba really wanted to go to the University of Houston. No, he wanted to go to the uh, University of Texas. And I had an opportunity. I didn't have an opportunity to go to the University of Texas. Neither did, neither did Bubba because of the segregation. So all of the schools were closed to us. But Michigan State was recruiting Bubba, and uh, he's, Bubba and his father said, 
they would put a good word in for me. And so that's how I got recruited uh, because they really, really want, uh, but uh, Duffy really wanted Bubba to come up. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just so delighted that, uh, that Duffy Doherty was recruiting down there and became really good friends uh, with Coach Smith and uh, everything else is history. I have a question for Maya, uh, for both, really, whoever really can feel you can answer this question. Um, this film deals a lot with segregation, but what are some other themes that are important to this film? Well, I think it's connecting the dots for our generation and, and people younger, because we've grown up seeing black athletes, women, um, people of color contributing to college athletics and professional sports now. This is just something we're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. And so it's to draw that correlation between everything that we have is because of my dad and pioneers like him, his teammates here at Michigan State that opened the doors so that uh, we could have the football that we have today, that we could have the opportunities because they challenged uh, what was considered acceptable for the time. So they came up from the South, handled their business in the classroom, on the field, worked really, really hard mm-hmm. so that you could see the the demographics that we see today, not just at Michigan State, but all over the country. And even if you look at um, SEC schools now, mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to imagine that all of those schools were completely white when my dad was uh, coming up. To my knowledge, you were elected into the College Football Hall of Fame in 2011. About what time around then did you guys think about making this film, and then when did you start filming? Well, I, 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 I'm very grateful, again, that I had the chance to, to be elected to the College Football Hall of Fame, and mm-hmm. of course it was a team effort. I'm, but uh, in regard to the film itself, this whole idea was Maya's idea. The story is about, our, it's about my particular move from the Laporte Baytown area and then coming up to Michigan State and then making a contribution to as a teammate and which had led to the Big Ten and national championships my junior our junior and senior year. Uh, things are, are, are different now. I'm I'm so proud that I see uh, so many African American athletes who are playing college football when years ago uh, those same athletes could not play in an integrated situation. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things that uh, I'm, I'm so proud that Michigan State, at, at the beginning, has been a big, big leader, a pioneer in recruiting students of color on the football team and also the basketball teams, the programs that we have here. And, uh, and, and, and it continues on. When we were coming up in 65 and 66, uh, we, we, didn't, uh, we played an integrated schedule where all of those southern teams they played an all-white schedule, and they didn't play integrated teams, and they didn't have black players on their teams. So it, it's uh, it's very refreshing to see the University of Alabama having a lot of black players. It's very refreshing for me to see, uh, for example, Georgia Tech and the University of Georgia, all of those programs now, is a part of what I call America, and that's the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Sports, I know in my house, are a very big deal, but I'm not the athlete really in the house. I played sports, but it's kind of like, oh, Audrey's just having fun. So I have a question, Maya. <laughs> what was it like? Obviously, you're interested in film and things. What was it like growing up as probably more of an artistic person in a very um, athletic household? Um, I can relate to that 110%. <laughs> so what's crazy about this film project is it's where my life and my dad meet. Um, He was always very supportive of my being a dancer and being interested in the arts and uh, working in theater and all of the kind of very creative things that I've done. And we've always kind of occasionally gone up to Michigan State for different things. But it wasn't until Bubba Smith passed away that I really had an appreciation for the foundation that my dad and his teammates laid here at Michigan State and the impact that it had. So that um, liberal arts, fine arts brain of mine was like, wait a minute, this is fascinating. I, I actually found something fascinating where I I just didn't have the appreciation that I have now. And so, uh, and there's so many similarities. So if any of your listeners are non-sports people, it's like it's occurred to me there's so much that I can relate to because if you think of the football as a stage, you know, the football field is a stage, is a canvas, is a platform. Uh, the locker room is, is no different than a, a green room or a dressing room. Um, and what they are doing on that platform is not that different, uh, especially at that time, uh, than what might be done on any kind of stage, right? Um, they were able to 
be on national television for the first time in America. We're starting to see uh, football televised, and you have these African American players playing right li- right alongside uh, white athletes competing and being amazing, and this all unfolding on television. So, in a lot of ways, um, this became a political theater, um, not necessarily intentionally, um, but just by circumstance that it happened that um, thousands of people all across the country were now rooting for African-American uh, players. So it's been it's been quite a journey. And I, I love football now. I, I, I was sort of like, eh, you know, <laughs> and now it's like I if anytime MSU is playing, my dad and I are either on the phone talking about the game or we're watching it together. Yeah, I was watching some of your B-roll and I know that you guys picked up kind of documented the 2013 Rose Bowl footage. So what was that like getting back with like the new players now and kind of stepping this new territory? Yeah, you're like a legendary Spartan, but kind of with this new um, foundation of players and like still know that you've had like an influence to where they are now. Yeah, yeah, that's very exciting that uh, when I see the young players now and I think about how old I am now and I see them playing, it it really makes me feel good, if you will. And uh, one one of the things that, uh, that really touches me is that uh, Coach D uh, and also Tom Izzo, uh, they're very, very concerned about the education of their the football players or the basketball players. And one of the things that I'm most proud of is that uh, uh, despite all of the segregation that I experienced growing up, that at Michigan State I was able to graduate in four years here. Mm-hmm. And in those four years, by doing those three sports, throughout those four years I, was, I, was complete, I completed all of my academic work and I graduated. And then I had a chance to come back and do my graduate work, and I have my master's also. And so the coaches, uh, Duffy and Biggie Munn and Jack Breslin, one of our administrators, they were very, very supportive at the time. And Jack, Jack Shingleton uh, was very sh- supportive. He was over in placement services. And uh, my family was very supportive. Now, my, my parents did not have a chance to go on to school, uh, mainly because of the segregation. So I'm the first of my family to... To, a, to, to get a, a degree, if you will. And I see that our athletes today, uh, when I'm at the Rose Bowl and I was at the Cotton Bowl uh, when we, uh, we beat Baylor, all of those athletes, uh, many of them, I saw that they graduated. And Coach D uh, was with them at the graduating ceremony, if you will, with their robes on. And Tom Izzo was going through the same thing. I, I think that's, that's what college sports is all about. It's, uh, it's nice to have an opportunity to play, but uh, when you say student-athlete, the student means something at Michigan State, mm-hmm. where a lot of these institutions, uh, you never hear the word about student. It's all about how fast a student can, uh, uh, an athlete can run, and, but, uh, but uh, it's very nice to see that still at Michigan State, uh, that word student is important, and I, and I have to also mention that President Simon, mm-hmm. So she's a longtime resident of Michigan State University and has been so successful in being our president. But she's also on board about how important education is. That's awesome. And so like, what are some important messages you'd like the newer generation, just because we're the radio station, <laughs> so the newer generation to take from this film? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's just how relevant this is. I know 50 years ago just seems like forever ago, but if you see some of the things that are happening in the news, you know, the things that we're fighting for in terms of equality and equal treatment uh, and trying our best to kind of continue the spirit of of the work that was started back when my dad was uh, in college and uh, when Martin Luther King was, was marching, I, I think it's to always appreciate, be mindful of the legacy of the past, be grateful for how far we've come, um, but to know that every day the little things that you're doing in your day and in your life that may not seem that important, because if you can imagine, my dad was just doing what he needed to do to get a degree. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't, well, I'm an NCAA hurdling champion, and I'm a, you know, all-American, and I'm, you know, it's like he wasn't necessarily thinking about life in those terms. He was just handling his business, going to classes, and, and, and being friends with friends who just happened to kind of become famous, you know? Um, so I think it's important for us just to remember that how you're living your life today 
will have an impact on someone 50 years from now, whether you intend it to or not. That's great. Do you have anything like to add to that? Yeah, I, I just like to add the uh, what what has meant a lot to me is that word believe. And so uh, when I think about where I came from and I hear the word believe, uh, it means a lot that, that you can accomplish things. And it's never, it's never, uh, the light is never out. I mean, you, you can still be focused and, and achieve. And I, and I think about uh, what Coach, Coach D had said to the team, that when we beat Ohio State in that uh, Big Ten championship, and Ohio State had not lost a game in two years, had, had not lost a Big Ten game in two years. But I remember after the game, Coach D said, you got to believe. And and of course, uh, that's that's what Michigan State is all about. Is that you got to believe that if it's football or basketball, you got to believe that you can you're going to accomplish that you can be that winner. Where in spite of that, you got so many other people are saying that you can't do it. And so when I say believe, I felt that I could make a contribution. And when I, I spoke about education earlier that when I think about education and where I came from, uh, we, we had hand-me-down books, and everything was second class. Uh, we had separate water fountains. We, we couldn't uh, share hotels. Uh, we were not invited or welcome in hotels. And we had all of these things going against us. And I came here to Michigan State. Everybody was friendly and welcoming. And I was able to make a contribution, and I'm so proud that I was able to represent this university and to kind of pay back. And I tell students all the time that you have an opportunity. Uh, everybody can't be a first-round draft choice. Everybody can't, can't be a number one pick, if you will. Uh, but, but in your own way, you can make a contribution, and it might be only to yourself. But you have to, you have to work hard. So those are the kind of things I tell students who are aspiring to be a, a good athlete or whatever. You know, everybody can be an athlete, but you might want to be a, an artist or something. Uh, there's a whole lot of things out there that uh, that you have to think about being the best of the best. Being a good person. Yes, being a good one. person. That's right. <laughs> so say someone is listening right now, and I know right now you're in post-production for your film, so how can that person get to learn more information about this film or possibly support you guys? Well, we have a website, so if you're interested in learning more about us, you can go to throughthebanksoftheredcedar.com. Again, that's throughthebanksoftheredcedar.com. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Uh, a lot of really fun and exciting things will be happening throughout the summer. Uh, great interviews like these ones. We are in the midst of a fundraising campaign, and I know that students are, are doing everything they can to fundraise for their own education. So if you can tweet, retweet, follow us, those types of things are great if you're interested. Um, if you're interested in making a donation, there are some cool incentives that you can learn more about on our website if that interests you. Uh, but definitely together, we're going to make it to the finish line. And I think people will be really excited to see how much the current football program is a part of our story. So I think most often when people think of documentaries, they think of people being very serious, talking about things that happened in the past. But uh, we definitely interviewed uh, many of the guys from the 13 2013-2014 team. Um, we have just kind of a lot of fun surprises that really anchor this into the present. So uh, we need, we need, we need, we need your energy. We need the energy of this generation because this story is is alive and well, and, and it's through our experiences that that kind of make that real. Awesome. So that's through the banks of the Red Cedar dot com. Dot com. All right. Feel free to check that out. And is there anything else you guys would like to add? I, I just I just like to add in, in, in regard to the opportunity, I want to thank you for give, giving us this opportunity. Thank you for coming. <laughs> and, 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 and 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 a big shout out to go out to Mark Hollis, our athletic director, who uh, has been so so supportive, if you will. And I'm I'm very, very grateful that uh, that I am a a Spartan, a student of Michigan State University. Now here again, I left many, many years ago. But my 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 heart is uh, is with the university, and they they all know that. But I'm very happy that I have a chance to share some of my my feelings with with the uh, people who are listening out there. Thank you very much. Go green. Go white. <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Thank you so much, guys. It's okay. been a pleasure. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. That's it for the show tonight. You can find this episode as well as all other episodes of Exposure on our website, podcasted at impact89fm.org. Special thanks to Sammy Leonardo, our station manager, Ed Glazer, our general manager, and Audrey Matus, our assistant news director. Thanks for tuning in tonight. I've been Quinn Hoffman, and this has been Exposure. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.